A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi everyone, this is Nemo. Just a heads up that due to technical difficulties, some of the audio in this episode isn't as polished as you're used to from us. The editors have worked their magic to bring you this episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Rusty Quill presents Below Decks, a trice forgotten deep dive. Episode 3, Nautical Collections in the 19th Century. Welcome to the third episode of Below Deck, where we dig into some of the research, questions, stories, and generally tangential interesting things that went into the making of Trice Forgotten. I'm Nemo Martin, my pronouns are they, them, and I am the creator and lead writer of the series. Today we're going to be talking about nautical collection in the 19th century, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Sarah Pickman. Uh, If you'd like to introduce yourself with your pronouns, tell us a little bit about what you do and your relationship with the show. Hi, I'm Sarah Pickman. My pronouns are her, hers. I just finished a PhD in history of science and medicine just a couple of months ago at Yale University. Um, The topic of material culture and expeditions in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Basically, I love geeking out about explorers and the stuff that they brought with them and also the stuff that they collected. I mostly focus on British and American explorers. The way I always explain my research is I say that I unpack packing. So I'm really interested in what things people packed for voyages during this time period and the 
stuff that they brought back with them. And I'm also a huge fan of audio dramas, and I'm just very excited to be able to geek out with Nemo today about collecting in the 19th century natural history, cartography, um, some of the things that have shown up below decks on this series so far. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> I, I feel like below decks, eventually every episode gets to, oh my God, I'm so glad I'm here. And so I'm already at the stage of being like, oh my God, I'm so glad I'm here because like my interest in writing this show was to do with all of the men on ships genre of tv shows and i love black sails i love the terror i love all of these kind of shows and one thing that i did want to focus on was what was being packed like trade routes and who can our characters specifically talk to i mean especially a lot of the men in boats drama shows they have ports that they can go to because they are cis white men (laughs) Uh, and they are part of empire and stuff like that right yeah that just reminded me of a tweet that i saw recently where someone has forget who, who originally tweeted it but they said moby dick is a book that asks the tough questions like what if a bunch of weird men were on a boat together? <laughs> yes. Yes. I feel like there there is this genre and I, I feel like it's it's also got some cultural traction in a lot of ways in the last few years you mentioned the terror and mm-hmm. black sails and now there's um, our flag means death. Yeah. And all of these shows. I think there's a always been a real interest in among a certain group of people in these narratives of these men on boats but as you said they're mostly cis white men. They're mostly the sort of heroic stories of explorers and navigators and people in the Royal Navy, people in the American Navy. And there's always been a sort of, from a certain group of readers and a certain, also a certain group of historians, there's always been an interest in these kinds of narratives. And I mean, I will out myself, I got into this topic partly because I loved reading those kinds of narratives. I read Alfred Lansing's book about Shackleton when I was doing my master's and just got completely obsessed. Mm -hmm. That, That wasn't the whole reason, but part of the reason that I picked my dissertation topic ultimately is that I, I enjoy reading this stuff so much, partly because it's, it's meant to be, we can talk about this later, but all of these narratives were created with audiences in mind, even in the 19th century. These explorers, famous uh, ship's captains were writing memoirs, taking notes with a public audience in mind. So mm. you know, they're, they're meant to be consumed. They're meant to be kind of colorful adventure literature, but that's obviously not the whole story. And so one of the things that some of these shows have done recently, and that also a lot of historians are doing recently, is trying to pick about who are these other people who are, as you said in the first episode of Below Decks, who are behind all of these white men, who are the, you talked a little bit about the the boys, quote unquote, who are sort of standing off to the side. You know, they're not, maybe not completely out of the frame, but they're not the people who traditionally have been examined by historians or been written about as, as the main people who are sort of standing in the frame, who are the most visible. But there's a lot of work now to make those individuals and their stories more visible and to say, hey, it wasn't just 30 <laughs> cis white men all yeah. living together, singing songs and pounding their fists on the on the tables <laughs> they drink. Of course, that was going on. But yeah. there are all of these people like Siva in the show who are who are making those kinds of voyages possible. Wow, so many questions. Because I have my list of quote-unquote boys that I, I like to talk about, have you come across any people like that in your research that you're particularly interested in? I started out my research looking mostly at polar explorers, and polar mm. explorers are still the folks that I tend to focus on quite a lot because I find their stories so fascinating in a, mm. in a kind of gruesome way. There are a number of Inuit individuals who not only become guides for Arctic expeditions mm. in the 19th and early 20th century, but in some cases make a career out of guiding 
and work for repeated expeditions. I'm thinking most specifically of a man named Hans Hendrik, who lived in Greenland in the late 19th century, worked for a number of American and British explorers as a guide and um, we might call a knowledge broker, somebody who facilitated communication between different kinds of communities, um, had a lot of information about weather conditions, but also how to hunt, how to provision these ships so that men wouldn't die, uh, it wouldn't get scurvy, and made a career out of working on these kinds of voyages in the same way that these explorers were. Mm. But he's not often mentioned in the same breath as being an explorer because he wasn't the person necessarily designing a voyage or leading a voyage or coming up with the idea of a particular expedition back in New York or London, but certainly went to many places that uh, Inuit communities had never been in the Arctic, went to many places in the high Arctic and the high latitudes, worked on repeated expeditions, so had the contours of an exploratory career, but until recently hasn't really been discussed with the word explorer attached to his name. So Hans Hendrik is somebody who I find to be absolutely fascinating. And there's so many, you mentioned Ali Wallace, or Ali Wallace is the name that Alfred Russell Wallace gave him <laughs> yeah. in the first episode of Below Decks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I have just been reading a book called Waves Across the South by Sujit Sivasundaram, actually. And it's, it is really interesting, this idea of the word explorer. I think that is something mm. that I, I've been wanting to like unpack and, and to think about. And the idea that like through the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, who is being allowed to be called an explorer. And because often I think whenever we think of explorers, we think of the like historical dramas from, from white perspectives talking about the quote unquote natives and savages and the people in the global south in a very like, oh, you know, we went there and found these people. But I've been reading things that are being researched now where people from the other side of the world were coming to London or like meeting white people for the first time, meeting European cultures and describing them in very funny ways in the same kind of language that white people were using for them and being like, wow, these like European women, they like bind themselves so tightly in, in their culture's practice. That's so strange and weird. And the, the kind of explorer as, as a figure that can be seen as a natural history curiosity in itself like we often think yeah. of the like naturalist as the like white man with the ability to write down what he sees but how can we turn that on its head right yeah i was thinking of this term that uh, david chang this historian who's written about native hawaiian in his his case mm. uh, native hawaiian geographies and kanaka moli navigators and travelers uh, and the term that he uses is turning the telescope around. So mm. people who for so long were the objects of the gaze through a European telescope that was pointing at them. Mm. And then what happens when you start to look at people who obviously had their own opinions about these people who were peering at them and <laughs> furiously <laughs> scribbling down notes? And what happens if we try to figure out what their perspective was in the 18th or 19th centuries? What were they saying at the time about these people who were coming to their lands who were training their gazes on them, who in some cases were employing them as guides on ships, but in all cases were sort of making their own sets of knowledge and trying to fit these people into their own hierarchies. Well, what if we, what if we flip that on its head? So I like that, that image of the turning the telescope around because it's very, very visceral. Yeah, it's such a good visual tool because just how we have been conditioned, I guess. There was a quote, which, because I can't find out, we'll put it in the show notes, but basically about Hollywood being a teaching tool 
and Mm -hmm. through repetition we see stereotypes over and over again and even those of us who I mean I see myself as being fairly liberal (laughs) and educated and read in a certain way even I fall into the trap of like you know believing stereotypes because that is what they are used for they are used to be believable and easy to accept yeah it's it has been both the terror and our flag means death I mean, just a caveat, we had finished writing this show before <laughs> Our Flag Means Death came out. And I was like, oh no, people are going to think that I stole all of my plots from it. But with Our Flag Means Death and The Terror, I thought that they were both quite interesting, that they did slightly turn the telescope around and we got perspectives of black and indigenous peoples. And the joke was not on them. The joke was always on the white explorer figure. And I was like, oh, I'm appreciating that even in the terror, which is very white and male, like, you know, you have to watch it two or three times to start differentiating between white man with brown hair. Oh, God, which one are you? (laughs) (laughs) But there is power in the indigenous people there. And that felt quite new and interesting to me. Yeah. One of the things that I think is also really interesting is that people often forget, again, because we have certain images that have come down to us from Hollywood and from popular books. You know, most people, even if they really love historical narratives, don't, you know, they're not reading scholarly work or they're not doing art stuff in the archives every day because, you know, that's not their job. You, You don't often see portrayals of sea crews, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, and realize that they were incredibly diverse in most cases, and and also even earlier in the sort of golden age of Mm. piracy, Caribbean piracy or Indian Ocean piracy. A lot of these crews were, pirate crews especially, because they picked up people from all over, and they were often picking up people who were running from something. Mm. You had all walks of life, people from all geographic regions, people of different religious backgrounds, you know, or whalers in the United States in the 19th century. A lot of whaling crews had indigenous folks on them. Mm. Indigenous folks from New England had their own whaling traditions, so they got hired onto these ships fairly early on. There were a lot of folks of African descent, including runaway slaves. There's Mm. actually an exhibit, I don't know if it's still up or maybe it just closed at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in Massachusetts about the maritime dimensions of the Underground Railroad Mm. um, and how there was this maritime, this whole maritime component of the system that helped slaves escape from the American South. And part of the reason that you ended up having a lot of black individuals on these whalers and other ships is that you, you could just jump onto a ship in a New England port you know, and get out to sea and be hundreds of miles away from your pursuers, mm. which, again, is it makes sense when you think about it. And when you start to kind of read into these logbooks or some of these deeper accounts of these ships, you find that the crews, usually all, all men, but still really diverse. Uh, but you never really see that portrayed in a lot of Hollywood films or until recently a lot of television shows. Yeah, uh, this idea that whaling crews especially was where I first was learning about, oh, you know, it's not just white men on ships going around. These crews are built of people who needed to have coin and so used their labor to do that. And I don't know, the complexities of all of these things as well were things that I want to think about in this podcast, where it's like, okay, now we have the idea that it's not just white people on these ships. So how did race operate within these ships? Was there like outside of the white gaze that we have written Mm. down, what relationships were being formed, what skills were being intermingled. It's an open question, right? Mm, mm. 
to turn away from this slightly. So you, you said that you liked like the history of packing, basically. And yeah. I found that really fascinating. Are there items that you think in nautical fiction that aren't seen? Or is there anything that you're like, oh, they should be packing these things, but they haven't? Or Oh, that's a great question um, in terms of thinking about the accuracy of some of these fictional portrayals. This is maybe a kind of a small point, but if you watch a lot of the kind of swashbuckling movies, especially, mm. everyone's really clean for having <laughs> been on a ship for, for a year, two years, three years, not just because of... This, is, this kind of blew my mind when I, when I first thought about it, but a lot of common sailors maybe less so in the 19th century, but especially in the 18th century and earlier, people who came from very poor backgrounds, in some cases were pressed into or coerced into military service, let's say, in the Royal mm. Navy, would have only had one, maybe two sets of clothes. Mm. Uh, and even on, on whalers, this became a huge problem because if you were a rookie, let's say, and this was your first time in the era when people actually processed whales on ships, mm. if you were trying to do that process and you were covered in whale grease and guts and blood, mm. you actually did not want to change your clothes during that process. You didn't want to swap out your other set of clothes because then you would have two bloody sets of clothes. <laughs> and what right. were you going to sleep in? So, you know, go back to the idea of the kind of glamorous Hollywood portrayal yeah. is so sort of like clean and adventurous, but actually so much of shipboard life, you know, before the 20th century was so gross in a way that I think is hard for us in the 21st century who are used to showers to really wrap our heads around. But people did that because they needed, as you said, they needed to make a living. They needed to survive somehow. They needed to yeah. eat. It's interesting, like, um, so Raf and I, the director and I, um, we actually just went to, there's a ship called the Gothbert. Gothberg. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's a Swedish ship, I think. And it's a tool ship, a three-mast tool ship, which was built in the 18th century. And so it's just docked in uh, London. And it's really interesting because it's still a working ship. They still sail it around the world. So it's not like some of the like replica ships that have been built and then stay in port in that there were still crew in the riggings. They were provisioning in London and so they were retiring their ropes. They were retiring the ship and it was just so fascinating because obviously intellectually it's easy to read like oh tar or pitch would smell like carbon, would smell like burning, would smell like smoke. But stepping onto that ship and smelling it, and actually afterwards we went to a restaurant and I, I was like, oh, I, my, we were only on that ship for an hour and my, my clothes smell of burning wood. And, you know, we didn't like climb any riggings. We only like, you know, walked up and down the deck for an hour, but my hands were covered in tar and it was like under my fingernails. Raf got it on her face and it was such a like, oh, these ships are dirty. Yeah. <laughs> they smell, they're dirty, they're very physical places. And unfortunately, we'd already written season one, but I think like, you know, in the future of the show, that all-consuming presence of a ship is something you just can't think about when you don't know what the reality is. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about the... When you said, you know, what is the item that these crews seem not to have? Mm. I was thinking about pitch because it comes up in... So if, done some research on the history of waterproof garments mm. and there's a sort of older tradition and this maybe gets back to a bigger discussion about how do you recover some of these sources how do you recover some of these voices mm. that you know are there but maybe don't survive in textual records is that there seems to have been an earlier tradition of sailors kind of improvising 
waterproofing with pitch because mm. it's impermeable. Uh, as you said, it's really smelly and it gets everywhere. But if you have pitch on your clothes, um, even though it's very heavy and it smells bad, it, it provides some kind of waterproof layer. So if you're out day after day on mm. a ship, often in very rough weather, that's something that you that you want. Because if you're walking around all the time wearing damp clothes, that can cause all kinds of health issues as well. Yeah. And so that's a very early, but it's a sort of, um, I don't like to use the term folk tradition, but like a, people people say vernacular is a sort of fancy academic term, vernacular, right. waterproofing <laughs> tradition. Before you have um, Macintosh, which, it, which mm-hmm. is made out of rubber, and then of course before you have nylon and Gore-Tex and oilcloth and things that come later that are mass manufactured. Mm, so easy to take for granted, soap and waterproof clothing. Because yeah, it would be so, I mean, as you said, health issues also just being soggy all the time, <laughs> just make yeah. you so upset. Like, I know, oh my God, this is such a like, wow, first world problem. But like going to the theme park, going on a water ride and then spending the rest of your day just annoyed because your jeans are stuck to your legs. Yeah. (laughs) But that and doing hard physical labor. Yeah, yeah. And now imagine it's seawater, but it's in your socks and you only have one (sighs) pair of shoes thing yeah. your, your skin is slowly peeling off <laughs> oh god <laughs> yeah it's like because it'll be abrasive right let that salty yeah. oh. Oh. <laughs> i mean yeah the, the ship the golf boat that we went on you can like pay to do small legs of the trip and mm-hmm. i was like considering it and then being like i will be so miserable <laughs> i <laughs> could not do that i think there was this real shift and i hadn't really thought about it until i read a book called Fathoming the Oceans by mm. Helen Roswodowski. And it's mostly about the development of oceanography as a science, but it's also about how people, especially she focuses on the United States, people came to see the ocean in a different way in the 19th and you know, sort of more modern period than they had before. And waterfronts used to be really often very dirty mm. and polluted places. They were, they were places of heavy occupation, right? They were places where there were ports, there were things being loaded and unloaded. There were all the industries associated with outfitting ships. So um, you'd have, you know, provisioning contractors, but also all the folks making sails, selling tar and pitch, making rope, you know, ships, chandlers, all the kind of related industry Mm. that's near a port. And in many cases, there were also other kind of industrial sites, things near waterways that were dumping all of their waste into Mm. the ocean. So it used to be that these waterfronts were like very busy, congested, often dirty places that you say wouldn't want, if you were a wealthy person, you wouldn't want a mansion right on the beach because the beach is probably where all of the, like the actual kind of industrial activity was taking place or pre-industrial activity. Um, And that's been a real shift that happened for a number of different reasons, but to having beaches be a place that you, you know, you want to hang out or that you want to go on vacation and being, you know, thinking about beaches as like pristine places where you can put your towel out and lay in the sun as opposed to a place where that would be you know, real sites of, of occupational activity. I was having this very similar realization in that the Gothberg is currently docked in Canary Wharf, mm. which is like the business center. And like, you know, it, it used to be the docks, it's a Docklands. So all of those kind of areas, there's a bit of the Thames, which kind of goes like squiggly. Yeah. It's like, and all of those places had like docks in it because that, you know, the trading port, that's why London, <laughs> was commercial capital and if you are on this tool ship now and i was looking around and all around you are sparkling 
beautiful buildings and residential buildings for like rich people and so everything is metal everything is glass the water i mean it's the thames so it's not exactly <laughs> like crystal clear but it was clean it wasn't it didn't smell of sewer water and we were walking down the docklands and just being like it's unrecognizable but also the irony of the fact that canary wharf was able to become this huge commercial capital because of the money that was brought in through the Docklands and uh, slavery and colonization and all those things that operated out of Canary Wharf or these Docklands. Yeah, it was just so like, oh, God, (laughs) the the money was here and then it was here and oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that actually with some of the things that show up on the show. So I was mm. listening to the first few episodes and reading the scripts for some of the later ones and all of the different sorts yeah. of objects that show up, like the ray skin gloves, and thinking about said all these things that are sort of traded in and out that create wealth for a certain group of people. But it's like, yeah. you know, and, and also that have become so much a part of how we think about the history of Europe or the history of the United States. You know, we think about like mm. the ways in which goods like cotton and tea mm-hmm. and the more exotic things like gray skin and feathers are so much a part of how we sort of visualize the european or the settler past but all of those things came from somewhere else yeah i really like bubble tea <laughs> and you know the history of bubble tea being the like england goes and takes tea from china makes plantations in south asia then brings tea to the UK, adds milk and sugar to it. Then places like Taiwan and Hong Kong go, hmm, milk and sugar and tea. Sure, let's also add tapioca. And then if you go around Chinatown now in London, it's like maybe 75% bubble tea shops. And it's like, wow, this is so... (laughs) Again, in that, that thing we were talking in the first episode about authenticity, like what is authentic bubble tea? You wouldn't have that without colonization but also trade building on top of each other and bringing ideas and then taking ideas and then adding to ideas and now we have quote-unquote authentic Taiwanese or authentic Hong Kong bubble tea yeah no that's yeah this question of authenticity it's so thorny because it's like what what even is authentic anymore so thinking about the ways that people feed each other but as part of that thinking about things like tea and chocolate and coffee that become like Duriger on packing lists, especially by the late 19th century. Every ship is bringing Mm. these things. And they're the sort of luxuries, but also seen as very much as essentials. People really start to rely on the caffeine and the sugar in order to do all this Mm. work. But again, these are all raw ingredients that, you know, were not native to Europe. And in fact, would have represented the end product of a lot of processes of, you know, all these chains of colonialism and and slavery in most cases in terms of who was actually harvesting the raw ingredients. A lot of times it was was enslaved people. You know, that the mm. that these these kind of small food items in fact are the the end of a very, very long chain or a very, very long network. But they are being brought on these ships that are then also going out and going on these further voyages of conquest or discovery quote-unquote yeah one thing that was really interesting again in waves across the south I, I think we also underestimate in the modern era of like being able to travel to places on one voyage yeah. like ports are so necessary and ports that are friendly to you mm-hmm. are very necessary and during this period even white europeans especially white europeans they were fighting each other all the time the english the french the spanish 
Portuguese, the Dutch, they were all like making allyships with each other, trying to make sure that they were like allying with one so that the third one wouldn't be too strong and like completely like defeating each other and having wars. And by the time some vessels had sailed out from Europe to another port, that port would report that they were no longer friendly because a war had already started in Europe again. And so they were like left basically provisionless with soldiers and sailors who had nothing left to eat and so would just desire giving in (laughs) because where else do you go? Yeah, Yeah. another book that I really loved called um, How to Hide an Empire, Mm. which is about the history of the U.S. as an imperial power, which in the U.S. were not often taught in, you know, in grade (laughs) school or sort of, you know, in Hollywood that the U.S. was an imperial power. Part Mm -hmm. of the book is about how did the U.S. acquire all these overseas territories that it has now in Mm. the Pacific, the Pacific especially, but, um, you know, but also thinking about some of the other, like, islands that the U.S. has taken over. And in many cases, these really small islands would have been coaling stations. I mean, Mm. Hawaii kind of fits that bill as well as a place to stop over and refuel your ship, but also, like, provisioning and watering stations. And also some of these islands were conquered because they were natural sources of nitrate, which is agricultural Mm. fertilizer, which comes from bird poop. So the gross 19th century. Yeah. Um, So I was talking to this writer called Carol Black Tam, and and they were talking about the family's history as Chinese diaspora in Peru. Mm -hmm. And they called them infiernos flotantes floating hells about Chinese diaspora workers in Peru who, who would be shoveling bird poo for the nitrates. And that Chinese people, because there was loads of poverty and land, would be taken on ships through Liverpool Mm. to Peru in order to shovel budget for nitrates in order to make good fertilizer for crops in other places like it. It's not just picking cotton that we were making people do. There were all of these industries that we were creating in different countries. Yes, yeah. yeah. And the ways in which there's these chains that rely on, on other industries. And I think this is this is like a thing about having an empire, right? Is that you have industries that need different components that you can draw from other from other places, you can set up in other places and kind of make them inter interdependent. I think about this sometimes with reading about British explorers or even American explorers, because the American mm. there's a sort of close relationship between a lot of the Anglophone explorers and um, they were reading each other's media and a lot of people who were members of say the American Geographical Society would have social ties to the Royal Geographical Society and they were very much in touch. They'd take advantage of each other's sort of networks and connections and a lot of Mm. these explorers would you know, even if they were going into a place that was quote unquote unknown, they were relying on a lot of different colonial stopovers to get there. So folks who were going Mm. into Central Africa were reliant on networks of trading ports, places where you could outfit yourself um, with supplies. Mm. In some cases, if you needed permission of particular colonial officials in order to enter certain regions, there was all this, this sort of framework that colonialism provided for a lot of these folks, especially in the, you know, as you get towards the late 19th century, that but before they could go do the discovering, quote unquote, they actually were reliant on a lot of these um, structures or like frameworks or, um, you know, infrastructure that was already in place because of empires. 
and even in terms of fundraising, like a lot of the Antarctic explorers going from Britain made stopovers in places like South Africa or Australia, Tasmania, yeah. that were settler colonies to do extra rounds of fundraising and to give lectures about upcoming expeditions. Because you know that there's a there's an audience there of settler colonists who feel a, a kind of emotional connection back to Britain and are going to be a, a willing audience and hopefully will open their purse to fund your expedition. So thinking about, yeah, it's like before you can jump off into the unknown, you you need all this, like sometimes literal stuff, also like figurative stuff that you get from mm. from being part of an empire and having the right, you know, the skin color or the, the background that is the people in the empire who are in power. Yeah, South Africa is definitely one where I, because again, I feel like we're not really taught about the history of South Africa in the UK. I'm not sure whether you are in the no, US. definitely but, not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that, you know, it, it's not, again, not just white versus black, but class comes in very heavily there. Like within Dutch people, there were poor Dutch workers who were trying to start rebellions against the VOC, the Dutch imperial kind of group. And the way that they were going about that was being like, well, we should be classed with white people because we are better than the black indigenous right, people yeah. or tribes. And the Dutch VOC were bringing imprisoned Chinese workers from Batavia because they were saying, actually, these Chinese indentured servants work better than the poor Dutch people because they're getting too uppity. And so it's like, yeah, all of these communities of people <laughs> trying to find a hierarchy between themselves and it not just being, you know, white versus people of color. And it also happened with Japanese imperialism. I know that Okinawa is a place that both Japan and the USA in particular have fought over quite a lot for sugar and military space. Yeah. And is one of these islands that is now just a commercial like tourist place. Yeah. Um, but was like exists mostly as a place to provision other countries and it's still it's still happening. Yeah. Yeah. Islands as items, I think, is an interesting way of seeing this maybe as as I think we tend to forget that obviously colonization happened on a big scale in big places and, and, you know, took whole countries, whole peoples. But these small islands or small, relatively small islands are still acting as colonial outposts, essentially, in order to exchange items for cheap rates. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these small, I was thinking about, you know, in the kind of Arctic and Antarctic context of the Falklands Mm. and... Denmark and Canada fighting over Hans Island off the coast of Greenland, which is named after Hans Hendrik, the Inuit Mm. guide who I mentioned at the beginning. But I was thinking, going back to South Africa, maybe this is like a little bit of a tangent, but and thinking about collections, one of my favorite, have you ever seen the painting The Inside of My Wagon by William Burchell? I had a, a friend kind of tip me off to this. He was a British naturalist going out looking for specimens and collecting for museums back in Britain. And he was on a collecting expedition in South Africa in the 1820s. And he it was also an, an artist, as a lot of these naturalists were. And he painted the inside of his collecting wagon. So you can see mm-hmm. all the sort of tools of his trade in there. So there are drawing supplies. There are nets for catching insects. There are jars of alcohol for preserving specimens, paper, including mm-hmm. just for writing, but for pressing dry specimens in between. But there's also a British flag. And there's sort of like more 
domestic items. And these are things that would have been in the back of his wagon. And we know from his memoirs that he, he had a caravan of several wagons, one of which was the kind of living space, and then one of which carried all of his stuff. He talks in his memoirs about having to buy a second wagon in the style of the Dutch settlers, of the sort of um, upland or interior Dutch settlers that was mm. more suited to the terrain, to the kind of um, unpaved mm. roads going into the South African interior. So it's a really nice little snapshot of like, if you're you know going out on one of these collecting expeditions, what are the things that you're actually bringing with you? And also he exhibited this painting when he got back to Britain. So what does he want people to understand about his sort of gentleman collector's life in the field? Yeah, I, I love those kind of paintings because it is so fascinating to see what they thought was important for you to know yes. that, that they had brought with them. And we're going to be talking to more people from Natural History Museum in a couple of future Below Decks because I work there a lot of the, quite a lot of inspiration came from people who do current day expeditions to like natural history expeditions. And sometimes it's really funny that pretty much nothing has changed. <laughs> like what you're bringing on an expedition, <laughs> the problems that you're coming across, the tools, the fact that things rot. Yeah. Um, if, you're, if you don't take care of them properly, the things like we were on the road and and so this accident happened because our wheels weren't good enough. You know, <laughs> these are the same kind of problems that are happening before, but then also new problems that are coming with age of technology and stuff. And it's really cool to see snapshots like that. It's interesting. I'll definitely go and look at that painting. And yeah, yeah, it's cool. And the thing that um, that I'm also fascinated by by the kind of the end of the 19th century. So it's a little bit past the time period of the podcast, but end of the 19th, turn mm -hmm. of the 20th century, you start to see this knowledge being codified. I mean, I think that there had always mm -hmm. been sort of informal networks of people, especially facilitated by groups like the Royal Geographical Society, who were sharing information yeah. about how to outfit an expedition, especially what scientific instruments to bring, but also who would you buy the tents from? Who would you buy your tin food from or the salt pork or things like that in who in many cases were actually military contractors before they also started outfitting expeditions but then by the end of the 19th century you see people writing this knowledge down in books so i've mm. looked a lot at francis galton's art of travel which the first mm. edition came out in 1855 but he keeps revising it for the next couple decades and it it stays in print for a really really long time i think it might have even been reissued in the 21st century in a new printing but you can find it on, huh. online in all the different editions and so it's like a, it's a compilation of all of this knowledge if you're designing an expedition you know he, he's mostly concerned with land-based expeditions what are the things that you need to bring and so here's here's the chapter about like here's how to find water here's how to find a good space to camp but also here's how to order your porters around here's how to you know, select the the best porters here's what you need to bring to trade with local indigenous people to so they will let mm. you through here's the kind of food to bring here's the kind of clothing to bring based on the climate here's the sort of medical supplies that you need to bring and you start to see other guidebooks that are that are like this some of them are, mm. interestingly are very are really specifically geared towards soldiers in the the british army or civil servants who are working in the colonial bureaucracy especially who are going to tropical places and sort of they're you know here's what you need to bring in order to um, stay healthy but also keep yourself sort of composed as a white person and a white person in a position mm. of authority in these <laughs> tropical colonial spaces and a lot of that is about what do you bring how do you dress how do you sort of comport yourself during the day so you stick to a, a routine that would have been familiar to somebody back in, in Britain? And people are, you know, obviously on the ground, they're making all kinds of different changes to their, their wardrobe and their 
maybe doing things in different ways, interacting with local people to a greater or lesser extent. But at least there's a sort of expectation mm-hmm. that part of what it means to go and travel to these places is to bring these like real material things from the home country with you. Yeah. It may, was making me think of kedgeree, which is a very British. I don't know if you if you in America have kedgeree, um, but it's uh, it, it's seen as something like you know the the Queen Jubilee just happened in the UK, and it's one of those foods that is brought out during like very British events. Kedgeree and coronation chicken. Mm. And coronation chicken is like chicken with mayonnaise and curry powder, and Kedgeri is a dish which is like a, it's kind of like a fried rice, but it's like rice with smoked mackerel and like peas and an egg on top and with, uh, yeah, like curry powder in it. And it, and it's one of those things where like, <laughs> I guess as a kid, didn't really think about it, was like, yeah, this is British food. But, you know, in the Queen's Jubilee was looking at all these recipes coming out being like, here's how to cook the best Kedgeri for your Jubilee celebration. And it's like, oh, this item of food that we are cooking here is like, and I believe, and this might just be like a, you know, one of those histories that's passed along by people and isn't actually true, but I believe it's something that was made in British hotels in India as a way of like combining Indian food and British food in a way that would be palatable Mm -hmm. to white people. So they had lots of rice, they had smoked fish and they had curry powder, but it's not like it's, it's not super fragrant. It's not super um, hot. Mm -hmm. It's not super outside of your wheelhouse. And it it makes a nice touch of foreignness without being um, too uh, different for our palate. Yeah. Yeah, As soon as you started saying that, I was like, well, where did the curry powder come from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So food is a colonial object. Yeah, basically objects. It's yeah. So- <gasps> yeah. Food is. Uh, yeah. There's so many fascinating um, ways, avenues in which food becomes like a, a sort of cultural marker, but also a way in which you see these sort of colonial processes happening. Things being being moved from place to place, being taken up in places, raw ingredients being mm-hmm. cultivated in one place or another for certain mm-hmm. audiences. Uh, there's a scholar named Ile Hobart who's looked at this in mm. terms of we're talking about islands and some tropical environments. She's looked at, at this in the case of Hawaii and what she calls thermal colonialism, which I think is really interesting, mm. thinking about the sort of the experience of the ways in which colonialism permeates all aspects of people's lives in the past and mm. and today arguably. And thinking about the ways in which temperature works in Hawaii. So she looks at the importation of ice into Hawaii and the ways in which, oh. you know, ice in drinks didn't used to be mm. a thing before the mid-19th century. Before you had ships that were kitted out to take ice from places where it was harvested, usually in the American context, this was uh, northern New England, sawed out of lakes mm. in the middle of winter, packed in sawdust and brought on these ships to different parts of the world, including Hawaii, where uh, for the planter class, having a cold drink in a very hot, humid environment, putting oh ice gosh. cubes in your drink became a marker yeah. of of wealth, of power. And then now we ha- we associate cold drinks, cocktails, with tropical vacations. You saying like earlier yeah. these sort of island beach vacations, but we don't really think about where that comes from. And in fact, it, there's a deliberate process by which people were trying to say, even though we're in a different environment, we're only going to mm. adapt to that environment so much. We want. We want some of the things that we're used to from back home and some of these markers of the culture that we're used to. And we're going to use these physical things to set ourselves apart from other people. 
She contrasts that with more recently, there have been these indigenous Hawaiian communities protesting the observatory mm. site on Mauna Loa. And there's there's snow mm. on the top of these very high volcanic mountains. And the mm. way that some of the media portrayals of these, these indigenous-led protests have been like, oh, well, but it's like, it's cold at the top of these mountains. Like, how are the Hawaiian people going to deal with the cold? Like, they don't know how to deal with the snow and the ice up there. And it's like... <laughs> Dude, it's their, it's their space. But yeah. yeah, the ways in which even something like, you know, temperature, what, you know, how do you expect your drinks to be can be the result of these colonial processes and also then becomes a marker for people that just try to differentiate themselves from other people. That whole idea of a tiki drink is like yeah. pineapples, plantations, right. sugarcane plantations, right. ice. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. And coconut as well. Yeah. yeah. I feel like everyone's ooh a bit about them now, but, but even the ice is such a powerful thing to think about. Yeah. So we were talking a bit right at the beginning about not just white versus person of color. Um, one thing that I've always really wanted to talk about is that in another project I'm working on, it's about this Zheng He, who is a navigator in the 14th century. And he has a Islamic background in that. I just think it's something that we don't ever mm. see in media in China they were importing people from the Middle East because that's where all of the universities were. That's right. where all the thinkers were. That's where everyone who was navig uh, studying navigation, the stars, philosophy, poetry, and you can find all of these compasses from the 14th century in China that are written in Arabic. And I just find that so, you know, we, we think, well, I personally think of the compass as being something very like British naval institution, you know, like get my compass, get my pipe, get my uh, little navy hat and ooh, I'm British and I'm doing imperialism. <laughs> but but that there are these like timepieces and, and huge star machine, like, you know, to, to calculate constellations all of these beautiful instruments that were a combination of Middle Eastern thinking and Chinese thinking in the 13th, 14th centuries and beyond. And that was way before <laughs> British people were doing their imperialism. Yeah. And, you know, these trade routes have always existed outside of just Europeans yeah. coming and making ports. Yeah. So that's my final thought. On. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think that you, you're starting to see this a little bit like I've I, the last time I was at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, mm. they have the Pacific Worlds exhibit now, which talks all about Polynesian traditions of not just uh, astronomical navigation, but uh, navigation based on wind patterns, currents, um, very mm. intimate knowledge of an environment that you, you really only get from having a, a deep connection to it, not from being a kind of interloper uh, from the outside. Mm. And so seeing the discussion more and more in these public spaces and exhibits and and in books about other traditions of wayfinding that have existed for thousands of years, as you said, outside of, mm. you know, it wasn't, nobody was, was waiting for Europeans or settler folks to <laughs> yeah. just show up and give them a telescope, give them a compass, uh, teach them how to, how to take a sextant reading, that there were these traditions of navigation and also just kind of deep knowledge of environment that you have people who, who then come in who want to take advantage of that uh, without really mm. giving, always giving proper credit to people who have that knowledge and are giving it to Europeans in the first place. One of the things that I was thinking about was talking about like life on, on board a ship and uh, thinking about the things that people would mm. bring with them. True that, you know, a lot of the portrayals of shipboard life 
have been, especially the kind of Hollywood TV heroic account travels have been about, you know, heroic sort of men going out and just <laughs> constantly battling storms or doing doing whatever. But there's mm. also a lot of boredom kind of on ship life that we don't really yeah. talk about a lot. And also a lot of really kind of mundane daily tasks. So even in, in mm. an environment that we think about as being very male, very cis, and in a time period when we think about people having rigid gender roles and doing work mm. based on gender identification in a very like mm. rigid hierarchical way, you on ships you have, you know, there's no women Maybe sewing is a woman's task, but who's going to do the sewing when you're out at sea for a couple of years? So the, yeah. you have all these traditions of, of sailors, you know, cooking for each other, repairing clothing, repairing each other's clothing, crafting, um, doing these kinds of very intimate and, and caretaking also, you know, taking care of other people mm. who are ill. So you have all these very sort of intimate, if you want to call it domestic tasks, caretaking tasks, things that would be creating a home that maybe... Mm would have been traditionally associated with women, but that male sailors are, are doing as well. And there's there's two really wonderful photos from Antarctic expeditions that always make me think of this, from Robert Falcon Scott and Roel Amundsen, both of their crews sitting around. Uh, in, in Amundsen's case, it's the whole crew that's sort of sitting and repairing gear, and there's like they've all got needles and they're all sewing. Mm. And in the photo I'm thinking of from the Scott expedition, I think it's just two folks who are repairing sleeping bags. But still, it's like, it, you don't often see in the sort of portrayals of heroic masculinity from the past today, you don't often see the sort of more intimate moments where people are doing that kind of caretaking labor, the sort of domestic labor. And I think that's a thing to always keep in, in mind is that there's the kind of master heroic narrative, the, the normative narrative, but there's always ways, whether it's thinking about gender roles, whether it's thinking about people of color who are mm. very intimate parts of these expeditions to whom a lot of explorers actually owed their lives to the knowledge and, and labor of, of people of color who never get acknowledged. There's always more going on than first blush. And I think that's really important because you hear a lot of critiques from people who are like, well, you know, today everybody's trying to insert uh, women or they're trying to insert <laughs> people of color, they're trying to insert queer folks into, they don't use the word queer usually, to, you know, into, yeah. these, <laughs> into these stories and like, that's not accurate. And it's like... Uh, no, actually. <laughs> it's not accurate because you you are basing your entire history on, like, Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> or on, like, you know, autobiographies by captains who only talk about their own heroic right. deeds or their lieutenants and stuff like that. Like, right, yeah. Like, I guess this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. A lot of these mm. heroic narratives, they were written for the public because a lot of how explorers especially, but, you know, Royal Navy captains as well would make... In some cases, they were making money by selling the publishing rights, so they knew that they had to turn a book mm. out if they got home, if they survived, turn a book out, go on a lecture tour, especially in the late 19th right. century. But also in the case of the Royal Navy, the Royal Navy sort of had ownership over captains' blogs and diaries. That mm. kind of documentation had to be handed over to the Admiralty at the conclusion of different voyages. And so they, mm. they exercised a very heavy editorial hand in a lot of these publications. Mm. And so they were meant for a certain audience. They were meant to be bestsellers, but that meant playing up the heroism and the accomplishments of the captain, the expedition leader, and the officers, and downplaying the labor of everyone else, um, downplaying the kind of dependencies of these expedition leaders. So, you know, people were written out of the narratives on purpose. It wasn't just that, like, yeah. oh, they weren't there. 
or do that much. They were written out on purpose. They were made forgotten. Yes. Hence the title of this show yes. being Trice Forgotten. Oh my God, I just put that together. <laughs> yeah, I cannot claim that. That was the marketing team doing a great job, producers uh, having more naming sense than me. But yes, the, the idea of who is, who is forgotten and, and that forgetting being an active job. I feel like we could talk about this for so many more hours, but unfortunately, we do have to wrap up for this episode of Below Deck. Sarah, where can people find you if they want to find you online? Yeah, I am I'm extremely on Twitter. My handle is at Sarah, with an H, S-A-R-A-H, M-P-I-C-K, P like Peter, I-C-K-S. And I also have a, a website, sarahmpickman.com. You can shoot me an email through there. Always happy to hear from folks. Always happy to geek out about expeditions, geek out about expedition stuff. And the, you know, this has been such a pleasure. It's been so much fun. This is an audio medium, so you know people can't see, but I've been just like very excitedly like shaking the entire conversation. I'm like, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it from me, Nemo, and goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And we'll see you next time on Below Decks. Trice Forgotten is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. The series is created by Nemo Martin and directed by Rafaela Marcus. Today's episode featured Nemo Martin and Sarah Pickman and was edited by James Austin, Lori Ann Davis and Catherine Rinella. Trice Forgotten is produced by Ian Gears and production manager Natasha Johnston with executive producers Alexander J. Newell and April Sumner. To subscribe, view associated materials or join our Patreon, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us online. Tweet us at TheRustyQuill. Visit us on Facebook or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.